We're going to be beginning our, I mean, sorry, continuing our series in the book of Acts. And we're, not, we're not starting all over again for those of you who are worried, um, although there's things I'd like to go back and redo and, and preach differently now that we've gone through it. We're not going to do that to you. Um, but we're glad you're here with us. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. We're going through a series in the book of Acts. We've been in this series for many months now, and we've got about a month or so left in the series. It's been a rich time as we've seen that God has been at work in his kingdom, kind of expanding his kingdom, and how he's unstoppable. And he expands his kingdom through the power of the Holy Spirit, despite all opposition. So that's kind of the theme we've been looking at in the main, main theme in the book of Acts. If you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 16 is our passage today. Let's listen to God's holy inspired word for us here. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we set sail to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit... They were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days were ended there, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and when we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day, on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt And bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him up into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord. Sorry, for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is living, it is active. Thank you that, that, Lord, although we fade, your word never fades. Your word never fails. God, I pray that you would use your word to bring life because that's what your word does. Your word breathes life. I pray that you would breathe life in us today, that you would minister to us by your Holy Spirit, that we would hear from you, that, Lord, we would not just be hearers of the word, though we would would respond to you. God, I pray that as we listen and as I speak, that this would be an act of worship to you. God, thank you that when you speak through your flawed instruments, 
that, Lord, you work in our hearts. Our faith is not in in my ability, Lord, but our faith's in your ability to make us alive by your empowering word. So, God, do that today. Be at work. Pour out your spirit on our congregation, we pray. We're desperate for you. We need you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, I recently uh, was reading a story about a guy named Michael Hingson and his guide dog that he had. Uh, her name was Roselle. And Michael's father, he had taught him to listen to God and to trust in God. And his trust, though, was challenged one morning on September 11, 2001. He had an office in the North Tower of the World Trade Center in New York City. And his dog, Roselle, had been asleep under his desk, but wakened when a loud explosion went off above them a few floors. Mr. Hingson writes, Shouts and screams came from outside my door. The floor tilted like the deck of a ship, and for one crazy second, it felt like the building was going to tip over. I took a deep breath. I tried to listen for God. Stay calm was what he felt God was saying. He didn't know what had happened, but his coworker guessed it was a plane. Since elevators didn't work in emergencies, they had to walk down from the 78th floor. And he goes on to write. He says, don't panic, I told myself. And I kept on praying. God, I know everything's in your hands, and I'm listening. I grabbed Roselle's harness and headed for the stairs. We hear voices above and below in the stairwell. And he writes, thousands of us were on the move, trying to escape from whatever horrific event had occurred above us. A thick gasoline-like smell filled the air. As we descended, it got stronger. People began choking on the fumes. What, what was this? Was there a fire gaining on us? There was nothing to do but keep on walking and praying without sight. As I did so, the wordless feeling flowed through me. Stay calm. Trust in me. We need to keep going. More than 40 minutes after we started out, we emerged into the lobby. Police and FBI troops directed us into the street. We weren't out of the building long before a new sound began behind me, a sound even louder, more terrifying than the sound of the crash had been. It was as if an enormous freight train was roaring at us from the sky. Run! My coworker David shouted, the building's coming down. My lungs filled with dust. It was so thick I could actually feel it on my skin. David's hand, my coworker, gripped my shoulder. I can't see, he shouted. That was the guy he could see normally. He wondered, could Roselle tell where she was going? I doubted it, yet her pace assured us, stay calm, just trust in God. I could tell Roselle wanted to speed up with David's hand still on my shoulder, the blind leading a sighted man. I broke into a run. Roselle led us down a side street and around a corner and slowed us to a fast trot. Somehow she kept navigating through the dense field of dust and smoke. We came to a subway staircase and descended. At the bottom, it got a little easier to breathe. We rested there for a while. They went back up and resumed our journey. When the second tower collapsed, we were far enough away that it wasn't able to overwhelm us. But that evening, I was home with my wife, Grateful to be alive, but saddened along with the rest of the country by the terrible loss of human life and the uncertainty of what tomorrow would bring. There are still so many unanswered questions about what happened that day. We don't understand. Not the least of which is how Roselle managed to keep guiding me when all went black. The one thing I know for certain is that my dad was right. Even when things were at their darkest, God is there guiding us. We're not going to learn about guide dogs today. 
But we are going to talk about what it means to trust in God. What does it mean to follow God? What does it mean to follow after God even when we don't understand and even though it might mean that we suffer? You see, the scriptures don't candy coat life. They don't paint a perfect picture of things. They paint a reality that's very real. They show us that humans suffer and that God actually sometimes calls us on a path that leads right into the thick of suffering. And, and yet God promises to be with us, to lead us. He calls us to trust in him even though it may mean suffering. In our passage today, the main theme we're going to look at is, is just that. It's that following God means trusting him. Following God, it means trusting him. Now, God's not a limited dog. Don't make that comparison. All analogies break down. But we can trust God even when we do not see that he really will lead us, even in the midst of suffering. Now, we might get hurt, though. We might suffer, and that's what our example of the Apostle Paul is for. But following God, it means trusting in him, even if it means suffering. The Apostle Paul, we find him in this passage. He's just given his farewell speech to the elders in Ephesus, and he is on his way. He is determined to head towards Jerusalem. He's taken up an offering from all the churches there, and he is headed there. He's a man on a mission. But there's a serious wrinkle in Paul's plans. And isn't that kind of like our plans, that whenever we are going the way that God directs us, we can find at times that there's wrinkles in our plans. There's things we didn't foresee. There's challenges we didn't anticipate. There's difficulties. But what we need to know is that God sees through those things and is above all those things, and it doesn't thwart him. So this wrinkle... In Paul's plans is that although the Spirit has directed Paul, he's told Paul to go to Jerusalem, but here's the wrinkle. He's also told Paul every city Paul has gone into, he has sent people to Paul and said, by the way, Paul, you're going to suffer. You're going to be enslaved. You're going to experience imprisonment and afflictions. Slight wrinkle. But last week, as we saw, Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 24, He had a perspective. He had a right perspective that that kept him trusting in God. So he told them, he says, but speaking of the suffering he was going to endure and knowing it was coming, he says, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You see, we we find Paul here, he's constrained by the Spirit, and and yet he's choosing to go forward. And then the first three three verses of this chapter, you kind of wonder, Lucas slows the narrative down, if you've noticed that in the book of Acts. Luke's been flying through years. He slows things down at points to emphasize different things. And for some reason, he really slows things down here in this narrative. And then he gives us some travel details. And you wonder, what's going on here, Luke? What's up with the travel details? You didn't do that through like years of travel. Now you give us some of these things. Well, I, I think there's some just very practical things that we can learn from Scripture. You know, we see that Paul and his companions... They're called by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, and now, what are they doing here? They're just choosing some very non-spiritual means to get there, aren't they? They're just choosing some really practical ways to get there. And interestingly enough, they're not, they're not praying. You don't, you don't see them seeking, Lord, God, what do you have? What ship should we go on? Where should we go? What course? What do we? No, nope. they said, 
God's calling us to Jerusalem. Now let's figure out how do we get where he's calling us. What do we do? How do we, how do we use the normal mundane means of life to get there? And so in these first four verses, there's one point that I want to, one idea, one thing we're going to learn is that God's people follow him even in the seemingly mundane. You know, most of our life is lived there, isn't it? Most of our life is not lived in the spectacular most of our life is lived just making decisions about what we're going to do that day, priorities and things like that. But what guided Paul and his companions and their priorities was where they were heading and what God called them to. That's meant to guide us, to, to guide our priorities as we think through our days in the mundane. But then that day's left up to us to make those choices, to decide, God, does this make sense? Does this seem wise? Does this get us where, you're, where you've called us to be? God, how does this further the goals of where you put me in my life? Lord, how does this take me on the path that you've already put me on? Lord, how and what should I do as a steward of my time, of my resources? What's the best choices to make? And you can see in verse 1, Luke lays out a very simple course that they set. He, he, he's recording a tribal diary of sorts, but he's showing that they're just taking logical, normal paths. And then in verse 2, they arrive at Patara. The ship wasn't going where they wanted, so they had to figure out how do they get to Jerusalem eventually. And so we see some practical things. They find a ship going over to Phoenicia, and they set sail with them. And then they see a ship goes on past Cyprus. It's a place that Paul had helped to found a church, but they didn't ask to get off. They said, no, we're heading to Jerusalem. God, you've called us there. And so they go on and to find a ship at Tyre. Then in verse 3, we read, they, they dock in Tyre for the very unspiritual reason that the ship needs to unload its supplies. And it would take many days for the ship to unload supplies and sell its wares and then take on new supplies. So they, they unload. They go there for about seven days. And then what do they do? They, they very practically look for the disciples of Jesus Christ. You know, they probably could have stayed the ancient version of the, you know, the Tyre Super 8 or whatever they called it. You know, Tyre was a a shipping town, so they would have had a, a few places for sailors to stay overnight because it would have been common to do, but they didn't just look for those things. They said, God, well, where have you called us, and then who have you called us to be among? And they looked for God's people wherever they went. They were looking to meet with God's people, to be with God's people, to have fellowship with God's people. There's some of a priority there as well. And it appears they didn't know them, but they shared a common bond. They go there for seven days, and the important thing is that in all of this, Paul was on a course. He was heading a direction, although they're making decisions. They were making priority of assembling with Christians, being with them. But Paul's not passive. He's not just letting life happen. You know, sometimes I think we just let life happen, don't we? We're here, and we kind of coast along. We just kind of let life happen. Paul's planning, though. He's taking advantage of opportunities. He's using wisdom. He's making choices. He's looking for like-minded disciples are. He's not being independent. And you know, each of us, as we follow the course that God has called us to, he, we should expect we're going to be making normal, mundane decisions to carry out his plans. But let's do those with the goal of what he's called us to in mind, like Paul and Luke and the others were. The bulk of Christian life, you know, it's just spent making good, wise, mundane decisions that honor God, that are in accordance with his will, looking for the best way to carry out what he's already made clear for us in his word. You know, the, the, the bulk of the Christian life is seemingly, I want to say seemingly, unspiritual. Now the reality is all of those things, those practical decisions are spiritual. 
because they're leading us in the direction that God has called us to. They're leading us to the path that God has called us to. All those things should be done with that goal in mind. So it was a very spiritual thing for Paul to make practical, mundane decisions because he had the goal of where God had called him in mind. The question for us is, do we have the goal of God's calling? Do we, do we have in mind where God has already called us, where he has placed us in mind when we make decisions and strategize and think about what we should do each and every day? The Apostle Paul, he, he heard God speaking differently. We can admit that. He was one of, the, one of the chosen apostles of Jesus Christ in a way that's unique. However, he was still a man and he still made decisions. One of the remarkable things that we are not like Paul in is that he heard from God directly on his course. We, we don't hear that way. We tend to hear from God based on the principles and truths in his word and we take those truths and those principles and then we apply them to our life. But we see a second thing in these verses as well is that um, no matter what path or how we hear God, um, we can see that sometimes, sometimes it might mean suffering. And the second thing we're going to learn from these verses is that God's people follow him even though it may mean suffering. Paul and his companions, they were following God's leading. They were following his call. They were following the course and path they were put on even though it, it would mean suffering. For us at times in life, we can we can think, oh, God would never call us on a path where it might mean suffering. Think again. Read the book of Acts. There's a lot of suffering. Often it is difficult. That's kind of why Jesus said, if you want to come after me, you take up your what? Your cross and follow me. A cross is not a pleasant instrument. But God's people follow him even though it might mean suffering. And this is this really where the bulk of the time will be spent because this is the bulk of where the passage focuses on. We always want to have the bulk of the messages we share with you come from where's the bulk of the message that the Word shares with you. And so Paul ultimately, he's following this course because he'd received this commission from Jesus. He wasn't being subjective. He's following what Jesus spoke to them, what the Spirit had confirmed. Now we don't know how exactly he heard from them, but we do know that Paul in some way had a direct confirmation from the Holy Spirit this is the course you should be on. And, and what's important to note is, is that we can emulate Paul as he followed God, even though it might mean he would suffer for God, even if we can't emulate the way that Paul listened for God in the same way. And, you know, I don't know if any of us here have been caught up into the third heaven that have received a personal commission from Jesus coming down, appearing to us directly. But we can follow some things. This is not about how do we hear from God, but what we can say is that we can follow God even though it might mean suffering. Now, you might have noticed something really strange or maybe unusual. I hope that yeah, as you, if you've been in our church, we've been encouraging our church to read through passages in advance of Sunday morning so you can start to come up with some questions and you can learn to apply the word to your life and you can think, okay, what is this going to say? What does this mean? You can wrestle with those things for yourself. And so when you hear me preach, you can say, is this true? And in verse 4, if you look down your Bibles in verse 4, it, it says something kind of strange. It says, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now that should strike you as, as unusual. Why? Because Paul was saying that through the Spirit he knew he was to go to Jerusalem. Hang on, what, what's going on? Is the Bible contradicting itself here? Is Paul crazy what could this mean? Some, some people think maybe this indication that Paul was making a mistake. Maybe this passage is, is showing us that, that Paul wasn't really supposed, supposed, not supposed to go to Jerusalem. 
Maybe it can mean they, they prophesied through the Spirit, but did they really understand? Well, that word through it also could mean on account of. So the question is, did Paul disobey the Spirit here? What in the world's going on? Because Paul, in every city before, in Macedonia, he went for like a couple years and he got warnings all the time about Paul. When you go to Jerusalem, by the way, you're going to experience some suffering, some opposition, some, some slavery there. And Paul was bound by the Spirit. That's as if the Holy Spirit was putting chains on him and saying, Paul, you're going to go to Jerusalem. It's that same kind of strong language. And now we see here what they're telling him not to go to Jerusalem. So is Paul disobedient? Well, that'd be, that'd be a hard conclusion to make. And here's for a couple reasons. And and, and I want to help walk you through this because it's an unusually worded passage. We have to look to the context. Whenever you, by the way, whenever you encounter a passage in Scripture that's difficult or unusual, you have to start looking, right? Start looking at the passage before, the passage afterwards, and say, okay, wait a minute, what in the world in the context of things? Because often there is idiomatic expressions and ways that language were used that, that we're not familiar with. So what in the world? Let me get some, make some sense of this. So that's what we're going to do. And I believe that as we do that, we're going we're gonna to see that they, what they heard from the Holy Spirit somehow was a warning, and, and then their conclusion was that he shouldn't go, and, and I believe it wasn't accurate. Now, hopefully, about now, you should be asking, well, hang on, let, show me where, right? Show me where. What, where's the scriptural evidence for that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Maybe, maybe you didn't, but you should. So. Well, turn back in Acts 19.21. I think we have this on the overheads as well. In Acts 19.21, if you remember, this is where Paul had resolved to go to Jerusalem. It says, now after these events, this was after the, this uprising in Ephesus and it settled down. And, and it says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit. And, and that word for resolve, that's kind of to lay something down, to fix something, to ordain something. So Paul ordained or fixed in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And we know that Luke didn't correct that or say, but Paul was really wrong. Actually, in fact, he doesn't say that at all. And this is probably now in our passage, almost a year later, and not only had Paul established in the Spirit, he knew in the Spirit that he must also see Rome. Did you catch that? I'm going to Jerusalem. I must also see Rome. Now, about a year later, he's going to Jerusalem. Now, what's going to transpire next? This Jerusalem, this Rome connection is important, and we want to recognize it. And one of the key verses after Acts 21, we're going to see this. It's a, it's a personal appearance from Jesus in Acts 23.11. And in Acts 23, a couple chapters from now, we're going to see that, that Paul has... He's been arrested. He's finished testifying by the name of Jesus Christ in front of the Sanhedrin, his brothers in Jerusalem. He's testifying to the, the elders, the chief priests, the, the high council of all of Israel. And he testifies of the resurrection. And his speech creates such a disturbance amongst the Jews that the Romans, they go and rescue him and they put him in their own barracks. And he's imprisoned in Roman barracks. And guess what happens? You know, Paul must have been thinking... What in the world? Was I really right about this? Did I really hear the Spirit? Did, did I? He must have been wondering. He must have been tempted to wonder. Did I really do the right thing? You know, if he was maybe like a little bit like you or I, he, he probably thought, was, was I really supposed to come to Jerusalem? And if so, what in the world is going to happen to me next? You know, when we face difficulties and adversities in the path that God's laid out for us, isn't that a temptation we all face? God, was this really right? <laughs> it's hard right now, God. Do you see this? 
As if God doesn't see, doesn't know. God's really hard. I'm suffering here. Hello? Maybe you're asking, God, did I really hear you? Did I, did I apply your words to my life accurately? Did, am, I, am I really doing the right thing? Did you really call me to this? Because God, this whole suffering thing, this isn't what I wanted. This wasn't what I was signing up for. Or maybe you feel imprisoned and you're asking, God, are you sure you got the right course for me? You know, it's those trying times when we feel confined by our circumstances. We, we look for assurance that we heard right and that God's trustworthy, don't we? That's where we're all tempted. And I think Paul must have been tempted that way too because something extraordinary happens to Paul that, that we have for us. We, we no longer need a personal appearance, but what we have now in Acts 23, 11, Paul's in this jail. He's in the Roman barracks and it says in Acts 23, 11, the following night, the Lord, this Jesus, by the way, the Lord stood by him. Now, that's a physical standing. Every, the 22 times that Luke uses that word in either Acts or Luke, it always means a physical presence. And so the Lord Jesus came and stood by him. And what did he say? Now, listen, he says, take courage for, he didn't say, Paul, you messed up. He says, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so, must, so you must testify so he's looking back, just as you must have testified in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Paul didn't mishear. He didn't misspeak. Just like Paul said, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to Jerusalem, and after that I must go to Rome. Jesus is coming back, and he's, he's affirming, he's standing with Paul. He says, Paul, don't worry. You're on the right path. You're just where I want you. And after this, take courage, because after this, you're going to go to Rome and testify just like you did, just like I had you testify in front of the high priest and the Sanhedrin and the council there. You're going to testify in Rome. So he's not saying, Paul, you messed up. He didn't say, Paul, you blew it. I'm going to get you out of this. He didn't say, you know, Paul, you should have listened to those warnings. No, he says, Paul, take courage. You must testify just like you testified in Jerusalem. You must testify in Rome. You're on the right path. You're listening. You're hearing me correctly. But you're going to suffer. Now, he didn't say this word, but he's affirming. All the previous times, the Holy Spirit said, yeah, this is good. You're on the right path. You're in the middle of suffering. You're in the middle of jail. This is just where I want you. So now, if you put those things together, you can see that Paul has correctly discerned. And unless we want to trump Jesus, Paul has correctly discerned in Acts 21 that he should go on to Jerusalem and he's on his way there despite the repeated warnings that he'd encounter sufferings and imprisonment. Now, can you imagine if you were Paul and you knew every place you went, you, you got harassed by people saying that you're going to go, you're going to be imprisoned, and you're going to have afflictions. I mean, that's kind of a, this end times word. You're going to experience affliction. I mean, it'd be a little daunting. But Paul has such trust, such faith and confidence in God, no matter what happens to him, that he's going to follow him even if it means suffering. So he's on the way there. That's what happens next. God, Paul continues to follow God and his companions. They, they had spent seven days entire going back to our text again. And then they're getting ready to leave. And look down in verse five. There's something interesting there. After a very short time, the disciples entire, who probably did not know him now, have had such affection for him. They all follow him out of the city. They all go down the beach. They, they're, they're with him to the last minute. The men, their wives, their children, all the disciples just so they could kind of squeeze every little bit out of him and say goodbye to him. 
And they pray together. They say farewell. They send him off. Paul and his companions get back on the ship, still headed for Jerusalem. Then look in verse 7. It says, When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. Paul didn't stay long. He was a man on a mission. And the ship there probably arrived Tyre, then went to Ptolemais, and it's going to go down again to the next port, Caesarea. And Paul, every time, he said, I'm on, I'm, on, I'm on the way to where God's called me. I'm going to finish my course no matter what it's going to entail. I'm not going to slow down. We learned from Acts 20 uh, that he was literally, it says, bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And look how it refers to it in verse 24 of Acts 20. I do not count my life of any value or precious to myself. Only, if only I may finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's what drove him. It was the grace of God and the good news about Jesus Christ. It's kind of what drove Paul's whole life. Question for you and I is, is that what drives our whole life? Is that, do we realize that everything else pales in comparison to living our lives for the gospel of the grace of God? Paul was bound by the Spirit. And then look in verse 8. The group lands in Caesarea the next day. And, and look who they find there. This is, a, this is the first time we've seen this guy in many years, 25 years later or so. We see a guy named Philip. Philip was the evangelist. He was one of the original seven servants appointed by the apostles to wait tables. And he now, they, well, last time we saw him in Acts 8.40, he went up to Caesarea after he did some miracles. The Holy Spirit did some like teleportation thing with him. Don't know exactly what that was all about. And he goes from town to town ministering, and he lands in Caesarea. And we find him now, 25 years later, evangelizing in this most prominent Roman city in Judea. I wonder why Luke mentions the detail, as he mentions all details for a reason. I wonder why he mentioned the detail here is to show that Philip was still faithfully carrying out the work of evangelists in Caesarea, even after 25 years where he'd likely been there the whole time. He settled in Caesarea, but he was still an evangelist. He was raising a family. And he was still an evangelist, still living for the kingdom. Well, then notice in verse 9, Luke writes about Philip. He says something else It's a little unusual. He says he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now you're like, what? Luke, what's up, what's up with that? Why are you writing that there? You don't do anything with that. You just kind of mention that in passing. Here's Philip, the evangelist. Oh, that's really cool. Um, we didn't see him, haven't seen him for a long time. But he's got four unmarried daughters who prophesying. But then he doesn't tell us anything about their prophecies. and It's a little, little unusual. He doesn't develop it, doesn't go into detail. But I, I think just like everything else, he doesn't throw details in for a reason. He's always trying to illustrate something. And so, just an aside, why does he note this? Well, I think it's because he's encouraging the guy he wrote to, Theophilus, the patron that he was writing this book for. And he wanted him to show him that, you know, God's kingdom continues unhindered um, through the Spirit. And remember back, look, turn back in your Bibles to Acts 2. We don't, we don't have, think we have it on your overheads this morning. Acts 2, 17. Flip over there. If you don't have it, look almost somebody else with you. Look in Acts 2, 17. Something else Luke wrote at the very beginning of Acts. Acts 2, 17 says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy what's Luke doing he's showing the reader 
that the words that Peter spoke by the Holy Spirit 25, 26 years earlier, wasn't he saying that the Holy Spirit was not just for the first few years, it wasn't just for the apostles, it wasn't just for the uber elite and the spiritual only. It's showing that the kingdom of God is still being established, the Spirit's still being poured out, and even on these young unmarried daughters, and by the way, why is that unmarried thing important? Well, Luke is saying, you know, in, in the Roman, in, in the Judean kind of culture, this Israeli, the, the Jewish culture then, women, unfortunately, were, were not seen as having the full rights and privileges as men. They were seen as secondary and even less so were daughters because they were still under the authority of their fathers and they were unmarried and so they had even supposedly even less value to the culture around them and yet Luke's showing us that the Holy Spirit's working in just average individuals and that the gospel is for every so-called average person of social status and that the Spirit has come to do what Peter foretold, what he foretold in these last days, irrespective of your social position, the Holy Spirit, God is not a respecter of persons and classes and, and those wrong distinctions between people. He doesn't make those distinctions, doesn't look down on women or young, young women. He uses and speaks every, through every person who comes to him in faith, no matter what other people might think about them. Now, that's not the main idea, that's kind of throwaway, but it, I think it's important to look at little details like that in God's word and see that God values people the society might not. And he speaks through and uses whoever has their faith placed in him. Look at verse 10 then. What happened next? Paul, he was following God. Luke writes, we're still staying for many days. A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. After many days staying there, this prophet, you know, he's not an apostle. He's not the kind of prophet who wrote scripture. So this is a different kind of prophet, not a not an Old Testament prophet. He's not writing scripture, but he's a prophet. He's speaking. And he does something strange and dramatic. It's the climax. What's the climax of the whole passage? It's these verses, really. Let's read in verse 11 what he did. It says, And coming to us, he took Paul's belt, it says in verse 11, and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. It must have been a little disturbing for Paul, don't you think? You know, Paul's walking along. He sees this guy he kind of recognizes. He's seen him probably 15, 20 years earlier. Oh, Agabus, hey, man, how you doing? Agabus comes up. He whips off the belt around Paul. He's like, what are you doing? And he takes his hands and his feet and says, this is how you're going to be bound. Probably this little wild-eyed prophet look in his face, you know. It's the same. I think about, you know, the, the prophets of old, like Jeremiah. God had him put a yoke around his neck and walk around so that he would... He would be a picture of the yoke that Nebuchadnezzar would bring. And then Ezekiel like put a little diorama together and wiped it out as a you know, sign of what God would do. And so Paul's thinking, oh man, what in the world? Now Agabus, he's the same guy. He already had a proven track record. He had prophesied like 20 years earlier about the famine that was coming. And, and the Bible says did later come in the years of Claudius. So notice something else though. He doesn't say the Holy Spirit said not to go to Jerusalem. He just said, the Holy Spirit said, this is how the Jews will bind this man. And so that helps us also interpret, okay, what did it mean when through the Spirit they warned Paul? You see, the natural inclination for us when we hear bad news like that coming is to think, that could not be God. Yet Paul's still heading to Jerusalem. 
even though it's going to mean suffering. And we can learn a third thing from this passage. We can learn that God's people can entrust decisions to him even if they don't understand. That's important for us to know, isn't it? God's people can entrust decisions to him even if they don't understand. Now, I don't mean like throw logic out the window to not plan wisely, but I do mean that sometimes God puts us in the midst of something where we will suffer and we don't understand why we're we suffering. God, we're obeying you. We're doing the right thing here. We're trying to honor you, and yet we're suffering. What's up with that? That's the kind of not understanding I'm talking about. And all of us find ourselves at times. Maybe you're a parent and you're raising your kids and, and you're trying to raise your kids up in the way they should go, but yet they're rebelling. They don't know Jesus. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, Lord, what in the world's going on here? I'm doing the right thing. Maybe God's placed you in a work environment and, and that's a place where you can honor him and you've seen great fruit, but all of a sudden people being seen to be persecuting you there. Like, God, what's going on? I don't understand. Maybe you don't understand, you're doing the right things. Like my parents growing up, um, they were always, they were faithful, they were diligent, they were hardworking, they were, they were generous in their giving to the church. You know, they're trying to honor God with everything and yet they experienced times of, of real financial hardship where, you know, they, they basically didn't have anything. They said, God, we don't understand. We're doing everything right here. And you can experience those times in your life where you're honoring God, you're doing what he's called you to do and you don't understand why is this suffering? Why are these bad things happening? We can trust decisions to him even if they don't, not even when we don't understand. Paul was trusting that whatever it meant for him was it would work out for his good. We know that because he wrote that later in Romans or maybe even earlier than this. And he says, I know for all things, for all those who love God or are called in accordance to his purposes, that, that all things work out together for the good of those But those listening to Agabus, they'd made the conclusion that certainly Paul should not go to Jerusalem. They cared about Paul. You get it, don't you? I get it. If I was with Paul, I would have said, dude, really? You don't have to go. And that's what they kind of did. They thought how effective he was. They admired him. They loved him. It didn't make sense for them. The Holy Spirit recalled Paul to go to Jerusalem and suffer. It just didn't make sense. It didn't seem right. This imprisonment and affliction would be part of God's plan. The only problem is they were wrong. Remember Jesus Saying, Paul, yeah, just like you did in Jerusalem, you're going to go to Rome. And where was Paul? In prison. And just like some other people were wrong about someone else who was determined to go to Jerusalem, right? About 26 years earlier, even though he knew he would suffer and die there, you know, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus had been telling his 12 disciples how it was part of God's plan that the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and suffer. They didn't understand that. Matthew 16, 21. It says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. Must go to Jerusalem. Same kind of must go to Jerusalem we see with Paul. And suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. See, that was part of God's plan. I and mean, that was a good plan. In fact, it's the only plan, the only hope that we have is that he did. But Peter, what did Peter do? Look in, in verse 22. He says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I get it. If I was Peter, I'd be thinking, oh, no, really? You're the Messiah. So he says, far, look down your Bible. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Peter, like Luke and the others with Paul, he was wrong. 
Disciples of Jesus couldn't understand. They couldn't understand why in the world would Jesus, the Messiah, go to Jerusalem and suffer and from the elders and chief priests and scribes. Why would he be, have to be killed? Why would he have to do that? They didn't understand. But it was part of God's plan. So Peter, not too unlike Luke and Philip and the companions of Paul, although he's maybe a little more bold, he says, this shall never happen to you. He's a little more declarative. Luke and his companions just kind of beg Paul, please don't go. Look at Matthew 16, 23. How does Jesus respond to Peter? He says, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Isn't that true? And wasn't that true for Paul's companions? Isn't that true for us? We so often set our, our mind on the things of man and say, God, if I don't understand this, surely it can't be true. God, if I don't understand how this plan's gonna work out and how things are gonna fit, then God, surely this can't be right. But he says, Peter, you're setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told the disciples, if anyone, now listen to this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Now, self-denial, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like a pleasant thing. And take up his cross. That's even more unpleasant. It means death. It means sacrifice. It means pain. And follow me. Peter had great affection for Jesus, but he didn't understand and he let it get in the way of what God had called Jesus to do. Now, now, Paul's friends and his companions, they were affectionately misplaced in the desire to keep him from going to Jerusalem. They didn't understand why God would work this way. Paul, though, he understood what does it mean to deny myself, to take up my cross. And he's willingly taking up his cross and he's following his master to Jerusalem, not to earn favor, but because he knows that his master already went, that his savior already went to Jerusalem and saved him. And so what can man do to me now? He's already been rescued. He's already been redeemed. He's already been set free of his, his blind life of legalism, trying to atone for his own righteousness. And he's already been set free from trusting in himself. He's already been delivered for all of his so-called righteousness that he says he counts as filthy rags. And so he knows that it's worth it. Everything is worth the fact that Jesus went to Jerusalem ahead of him. Now, Paul's no Jesus, but he is. We're all called to follow in, in the footsteps in some way. So Paul's following in his master's footsteps just as others who would trust in Jesus are called to do. So Paul would shortly write later in his letter to the Philippians. He probably wrote it when he was in prison in Rome in a little while from our passage. And so Philippians 1.20, here's his perspective. In Philippians 1.20, he says, as it is my eager expectation, Paul has an eager expectation, eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, not as now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ. And to die, that's gain. Paul wasn't sadistic. He wasn't looking to lose his life. But he was saying is the reason why it's gain, the reason why it's gain, he says in the next verse in 22 of Philippians 1, he says, because to depart and be with Christ, that is far better. He knew that Christ had already secured his permanent place, that nothing could shake that. And he, he wanted to be with Christ. He, he, he knew that Christ would be honored no matter what happened to him. 
because Christ had already rescued him. And then Paul looked down at verse 13. He corrects his, his friends in a similar way the way Jesus corrected them, but he does it a little differently. He's not Jesus. So he says in, in verse 13, Paul answered him, What are you doing? You're weeping. You're breaking my heart. It's a very violent word there, actually. He says, you're weeping, you're breaking my heart. This is hard, you're making this hard on me. This isn't making it easier. He says, I'm, not, I, I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Boy, they were well-meaning, but they were making it harder on Paul. Paul had already counted everything else in his life as lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord, and everything was submitted to that question for us is, is everything in our lives submitted to that, counting everything else as lost compared to the surpassing greatness of what? Of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord, who for our sake died so that we will never die. Although we physically die, we can trust that he will one day resurrect our bodies. Paul didn't understand why he was called to suffer, but he was willing to go, willing to trust in God, because he was convinced that not only was God for him, but nothing if you read in, in, in the end of Romans 8, it says, nothing can separate me from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. And he gives a long list there at the end of Romans 8. And he says, you know, neither death, nor life, nor sword, or famine. You know, I was, I was thinking about the song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. It's an old hymn. Boy, I can I only imagine, boy, if, if Paul would have had that song. That's his theme song. Jesus gave it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed me white as snow. Well, we see his response. It silenced Luke and the others. And so Luke writes in verse 14, look in your Bible, it says, and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Finally, they stopped trying to convince Paul of their own will and they trusted Paul to the will of the Lord. They said, let the will of the Lord be done. They saw he was determined to follow in the footsteps of the master and honor the name of Jesus and and seeing the submission of Paul to the will of God enabled them to trust that Paul's decision was indeed the will of the Lord and here they trusted in God's will themselves and they weren't, they were, they were, they were ceasing and they were saying, you know what, we're, we're gonna stop and we're gonna say, let the will of the Lord be done. That was a faithful statement. Let the will of the Lord be done. We, this, this is the will of the Lord. Let it be done. It's Luke's way of saying, this, is, this was God's will and we're saying that we're gonna let God's will be done instead of imposing our, our will, even if we don't understand So Luke and the others, they stopped trying to convince him to avoid suffering. Instead, they trust this is the will of the Lord and God will do as he wishes. And so finally, Luke and his companions are able to trust in God even though they didn't understand. And sometimes that's how God leads us and sometimes he leads others in ways we don't understand. But we can trust our direction and decisions to him even when we don't and even if we might suffer. And ultimately, we can do that knowing that his will is best. And finally, there's a fourth thing really briefly we're going to look at from this passage and it's something that's a thread that's seen throughout these verses, all through these verses, we're going to see something that God's people care for each other as they follow him. There's a bunch of simple details that Luke throws in this passage, and, and we can see all throughout this passage. It's not a teaching passage, but it's, it, it does teach us a lot. And it shows us that all throughout, God's people are caring for each other as they follow him. 
There's a togetherness aspect of these verses, right? How do these verses begin? We went, we did, we went here, we went there. They were together. Paul wasn't going off on his own. There was a togetherness, a fellowship, a camaraderie. You know, this is a, this is a closer fellowship than the fellowship of the ring, if you've ever seen Lord of the Rings. This is, this is a, just a togetherness. They're on a journey, and they're not going to be broken up because they're, they're committed to the cause of Christ, this whole passage is written with his wee perspective. He's not alone. He's those caring for him, supporting him all along the way. In verse 4, if you look back up there, they deliberately sought out the disciples and stayed there. You know, they didn't have to, they didn't have to be with other people, but yet they were deliberately seeking out the disciples. Entire disciples had close affection for them after only seven days. Talk about unique fellowship. And they're with them all the way to the ship and they prayed together. They said farewell to each other. And then if you look down in verse 15, after they trust God's will to be done, what do they do? They move on. They go with Paul to support him. There's, there's, a, there's a care aspect here. They're supporting Paul. They're caring for him. And to show that the support of Luke says that they got ready. What do they do after they cease nagging Paul and saying, don't do that, Paul? They all get ready and they go up to Jerusalem with him. Okay, this is God's will. We're going with you. We're sticking with you. We're not abandoning you. We know suffering's coming and we're not leaving you because the times are getting tough. We're staying with you. We're going to care for you. We're going to support you. And not only that, in addition to Paul's constant traveling companions, it says some of the disciples from Caesarea went also along with Paul to support him going to Jerusalem and they were going to go to the house of Nason. His friends had chosen, you know what, we're not going to abandon you, we're going to care for you, we're going to support you. So by the end of verse 16, they go with him and the others join him. They head to the house of an early disciple where they would find care and support. There's an aspect of mutual care and fellowship as they go along the way and that's something we can't be lost on us. As we go along what path God has called us to and where he's placed us, we're not to do that alone. And even the apostle Paul needed care and fellowship and support and he looked out for those things. And as believers in Christ, God's given us this church, your local church. So as you're walking out the path that God's called you on, you can support one another, care for one another. There's a mutual aspect here that can't be ignored. It's really all throughout the book of Acts. Wherever Paul went, he encountered and relied on the care and support of fellow disciples. He relied on other believers as he followed God. We're called to rely on other believers as we follow God. Sometimes this meant heartache for Paul. You know, he said, you're breaking my heart because he loved him so much, but he was in it together. Even the final leg of his journey, the disciples, they go with him, and he's strengthened. I can only imagine that he was strengthened even as he was put in the Roman barracks. He's thinking, you know what? I know that people are praying for me. I know people are with me. Even though I'm, I'm alone, I know that I'm not alone. And so we, we learn some things in the passage that God's people follow him even the seemingly mundane. We learn that people, God's people follow him even though it might mean suffering. This, people can entrust decisions to him even if they don't understand that that. God's people care for each other as they follow him. And, and, and maybe this morning, you're the kind of person and you're sitting back and waiting for things to come to you. And you need to learn that God doesn't give you all the details, but he calls you to step out in faith and follow him. Maybe you need to stop being subjective. Some people here are being subjective thinking, I don't have a, I don't have a feeling, I don't have like a liver shiver or whatever you call those things. You know, those, I don't have goosebumps, I don't know if that's really God or not. And you need to go back and look at his word. It says, what are the things he's called me to? 
The gospel is meant to primarily motivate me. What does God call me to? Where has he placed me? And then how can I live that life out? And so maybe you need to start proactively looking. How can I carry out what God has already made clear to me? God made it very clear to Paul. He just used some mundane decision-making. Carry, let's carry it out. Maybe you need to look for opportunities where God's already called you and make wise plans to follow him. Maybe you're following God and planning, but all your plans seem to end up in suffering. Maybe you're in a total different place. You're like, God, I'm planning. I'm trying. I'm following you, but Lord, everything I'm doing, it seems to, to end up in suffering, and, I, and I'm having a hard time here. God doesn't overlook that. Know that God sees your suffering. He's not ambivalent towards it. He weeps with those who weep. Maybe you're trying to figure out, you know, I'm being faithful. I'm trying to follow you, God. And God, I'm trying to be wise. I'm trying to seek your revealed will and your word and use the wisdom you give me, Lord. I'm trying to seek input of others and yet I'm experiencing affliction. And maybe you need to hear God's encouragement to you through these verses and saying, keep the course. Keep following me. You can trust me. I'm going to lead you through this. Doesn't mean you're going somewhere wrong. Doesn't mean you've sinned. Doesn't mean you've done something wrong. Listen, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the good news is that God's not punishing us. Those who place their faith in Christ, he doesn't punish you. He loves you as his son and daughter. So maybe you need to hear encouragement from these verses and see that, you know what? If the apostle Paul, if Jesus, if it was part of God's plan to endure suffering, then I know that God has good things in store for me even though I suffer. And, and you should hear Jesus' words to you to say, take courage. Take courage. You're going to testify of me. You're going to testify of me where you're at. And you're going to go on to testify of me, whether you live or die. For others, maybe we're self-sufficient. We need to stop trying to go it alone in the Christian life to let others share our burdens, share our difficulties, and help care and support us along the way. It's amazing what a means of encouragement is to live your life with other believers and receive God's care and strength and encouragement and sometimes correction through them as a way, means of encouragement too. For others, maybe we need to be like the people around Paul and say, how can we care for others? We need to hold up their arms and support them. They're going through difficult times. They're going to be suffering. They're going to experience confliction. How can we support them? How can we care for them? How can we go with them on their journey? Maybe others in a place where they don't understand why God has them where he does and why things are hard and why you're suffering. We need to hear that, keep following me. You can trust me. Even when all of life rumbles around you, you can trust that he'll lead you, he'll guide you. Maybe we need to hear and learn that our infinite, all-loving, think about that. We have an infinite, all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing God, and we need, maybe we need to learn that his character and his nature and his trustworthiness to know what is best for us is not affected by our finite, limited ability to understand. Because we have a finite, limited ability to understand. We are finite. God is infinite. He's not limited. Maybe we need, maybe we need to learn that and say, God, I, I confess, kind of like Job did. God, I confess, I I put my hand over my mouth and I say that you are God and I will trust in you. Maybe, maybe we need to learn from Paul that whatever might come, nothing's gonna separate us from the love of, of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No tribulation, no distress, no famine, no sword, no nakedness or death. And 
I'm gonna share a couple of scriptures with you to encourage you. One's from, from Paul. He wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.1. He says, for we know that if the tent, speaking of our bodies, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He's got that eternal perspective and trusting God no matter what happens. This other scripture I want to share is from the pen of the beloved apostle John. And he wrote in Revelation 14, 13. And he said, and I hear, heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Then I want to leave you one final thing. It's the song written back in 1865, 150 years ago. We don't have it on your overheads. Just listen to the words. This is the original words. It says, I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. Isn't that true? By the way, Paul's name, it meant small. Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. For nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. And now complete in him my robe, his righteousness. Close sheltered neath his side, I am divinely blessed. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change this leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. When from my dying bed my ransomed soul shall rise, Jesus died my soul to save, shall rend the vaulted skies. And when before the throne I stand in him complete, I'll lay my trophies down, all down at Jesus' feet. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Following God means trusting him, even if it means suffering. But he is faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for teaching us. Thank you for your word. I pray that you continue to be with us. I pray that you would help us apply these words to our heart, that we'd respond to you, some to action, some to trust, some to repentance from self-trust, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we would help care for one another. Lord, I pray there would be much response, that Holy Spirit, you would be at work in our hearts. We pray that we might do all these things because you have paid it all, and it's all by your grace. In your name we pray, amen. Well, if you'll stand